Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, it's a pleasure to welcome onto the show Carmine DiCibio. Carmine is the global chairman and chief executive officer of EY. EY is one of the world's largest professional services organizations. It's a household name. They employ about 300,000 people globally, operate in more than 150 countries, and I think the average age of its workforce is just around 27 years. So it's a very young organization in that respect. Today we're going to be talking about ESG, ESG factors, and by that I mean environmental, social, and governance. What is EY doing in the field of ESG? What is EY encouraging its clients and suppliers to do about ESG? And how are they driving ESG standards forward? How are they driving non-financial reporting? How are they leveraging their prime position to bring clarity and share standards in this field? We're also going to be looking at Carmine DiCibio, the individual. He has a remarkable story. In some respects, you could say it's the American dream. Carmine was born in Italy. His family moved to the U.S. when he was just three years old. Uh, There was no previous family history of higher education whatsoever. And subsequently, Carmine ended up at university, ended up doing an MBA at NYU, joining EY in 1985 and rising through the ranks to become global chairman and chief executive officer. Remarkable story. We're going to talk a little bit about that as well. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. Now today, just a little bit of a heads up. The sound quality is not perfect, and I apologize in advance. It's been one of those days where everything that could go wrong with the internet has gone wrong. And we've had a torrential downpour as well. So the sound quality is a little bit suboptimal. However, the content of the conversation is really great. And I know you'll enjoy it and find it very useful as well. So without further ado, Carmine DiCibio, Global Chairman and CEO of EY. A big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. I think you have a remarkable personal narrative. I'd love to find out a little bit more about that. It's not easy coming to the U.S. as a child immigrant at the age of three with no family history of higher education whatsoever, and going on to get your MBA at NYU, join EY in 1985, and eventually rising through the ranks to become chairman and CEO. It's truly remarkable. Welcome onto the show, Carmine. Great to be here, Alberto. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm uh, excited to be here. And uh, thank you for the warm and kind introduction. Um, that is me. That is correct. I was... Uh, an immigrant into the U.S. Uh, when I was three, uh, and uh, you know, and I went through the school system in the U.S. and learned English through the school system. And you know, 
what it allowed me to really to today, what uh, my background has done is um, I understand the feeling of belonging and not belonging. And, uh, you know, when you move to a different country and you've done a lot of this as well, um, it's a different culture. And, uh, and so, you know, your norms might not be their norms. Um, and what I always use as examples, and uh, I'm a bit of a food person myself, is, um, you know, when my mom would pack me lunch uh, and uh, send me off to school, um, I would have a prosciutto sandwich Excellent. with mozzarella. Uh, and um, my friends would all have ham and cheese or bologna and cheese, and, um, and they would make fun of my sandwich. Um, and so... But I like the taste, you know, so I continue to eat it. And I always laugh because here we are, whatever, 40 years later, and uh, prosciutto and mozzarella is probably more common than ham and cheese today and, and certainly better tasting. So, so uh, I laugh in terms of food. But, but it is, it's, a, it's a small example, but it is an example in terms of feeling like you belong and not feeling like you belong. And so, so that's important. Um, it's important. And it's something that we talk a lot about at EY. We want all our people to feel like they belong. Um, and it's something that uh, as part of our DNI effort, we, uh, we focus on this and we focus on belonging and focus on uh, people feeling like they're part of a family. And I know it's a big family. It's over 300,000 people. But if you talk to our people and you talk to our people about our culture, um, that's the way they feel. Uh, and I'm very proud of that. And that's something that's been built up all, over many years, um, not just during my tenure, but many years. And many of my predecessors have had the same culture and have driven the same culture. So I always like to say, Alberto, EY is a great place to work. It's a family. Um, my wife at times makes fun of me because I have my family and my EY family. Um, but that's the way that's the way I look at it. Excellent. When you feel like an outsider, what was it like climbing the corporate ranks at EY? I mean, this is, you've reached pretty much the pinnacle. You know, the times were changing while I was growing up in the firm. Um, and so not only ethnic background, but gender, you know, some of, early on, my two mentors and my two partners that I worked for early on in my career were both women. Um, and my, when I was really, you know, my first five years, uh, I worked for a partner. Her name was Regina Dolan. She was one of the first partners in the New York office. She was also one of the first partners in financial services, which, which was even more male oriented at the time. And, um, and she, you know, I really looked up to her. She taught me many things uh, in financial services. I learned a lot about how Wall Street works and uh, and operational areas and certainly accounting areas and so forth. I started an audit. Uh, and she was, she was a real maverick. Um, and she was well-known uh, to all clients and well-known in New York City. Um, and it's something that, um, that obviously taught me a lot. And then a bit later, uh, a few years later, when I was a manager, uh, I worked for uh, one of my other mentors, who's now retired, uh, uh, her name's Eileen Garvey, and she was one of the first uh, partners that made partner on a flexible work arrangement uh, at EY. So she, she actually... When, when was that? So that was in the mid-90s. Um, that was in the mid-90s. And so, you know, which at the time was unheard of, but here's a woman with 
uh, three kids who uh, who was working and raising a family, and she was working, you know, in the office three days a week, but she'd be on phone calls and so forth. And she made partner, and and uh, she was one of my sponsors for me to make partner as well. Uh, so, so to me, you know, learning, um, you know, as I went through the ranks, I really, uh, you know, really envied some of these people who really did a lot uh, at EY before me, uh, and did a lot in terms of DNI, in particular in this case, in, on the gender side uh, for the good. Really interesting this diversity that you have as well from your own background and, and coming from a, a background that nobody from with a you know college degree and it must help you sort of refine your your ability to be a bit more subtle when you're dealing with folks from all, all walks of life yeah yeah and obviously we're a global organization so so you know listening and, and understanding different cultures is incredibly important Alberto, I will tell you, with some of the uh, racial issues that have occurred over the last year or so, um, this is something that we at EY have been very focused on. And one of the things that uh, we have a group, uh, I and our global head of diversity um, have, have run a group we call the GPIS, the uh, Global Diversity Inclusive Steering Committee. Um, and this committee really gives a lot of input to our global board on things we need to change at EY and so forth. And it's that committee is really more uh, some of our leaders around the world. But when when the racial issues, um, you know, really occurred and started in the U.S., but then became it became much more of a global issue. We set up um, a different committee uh, around the world, which is really our social equity committee. We call it our G-set task force, actually. Um, And so that committee is about 40 uh, partners from around the world. Uh, who are diverse. Um, many of them are diverse from a gender perspective, a color perspective, and everything else. And um, and we really wanted to understand what we needed to do different, um, you know, around the world, um, but certainly starting in the U.S. and, and the U.K. and so forth. And uh, that group, um, and obviously this is in a virtual world still, so when you saw the pictures of all these partners working together around the world and literally on Zoom, you could really see everyone. Um, it was remarkable. Uh, the amount of effort, and this is, you know, on top of their day job, let's call it, that they put into this night and day in terms of what we needed to fix and how we can get to the next level. So this group came up with 10 recommendations mm-hmm. for the global board um, in terms of things we can do better. And that's everything from certain processes in HR to um, how do we get the word out? How do we talk more openly about this? To how do we use storytelling um, to make people feel more like they belong and so forth? And so uh, the global board approved all 10 uh, and now we're working on them. And uh, I'm very proud in terms of what this group has accomplished. And I, I tell people this, it's almost emotional when you see if you hear them and they would all give you testimony just in terms of how much they feel like they accomplished, but also the relationships they built virtually with one another around the world. Um, so, so that's just one effort uh, in terms of our great, great. Tell me a little bit about ESG. So, you know, sustainability is one of those things very close to my heart and the heart of our listeners. Um, 
First of all, what's the state of affairs with regards to ESG standards and reporting, uh, non-financial reporting? Where do we stand if there is a, a little bit of an overview you can provide us? Yeah, no, I could I could talk for a while on ESG standards. I don't know if you really want me to do that, but, uh, but so here's here's uh, where we are. Um, obviously, as a firm and personally, uh, I do believe that uh, the world has to move forward on creating standards, common standards um, around you know in, around the world, uh, and I think that's going to be important. It's going to be important for investors, for asset owners, asset managers. Uh, companies and employees. And what we've been doing, Alberto, is um, we, we are involved with what some people call the alphabet soup in terms of standard setters and regulators. And, and we, you know, we have people sit on different boards of these organizations and, and we've been trying to encourage them to work together. Um, and, uh, and I think because of us and the other big four, a few of them are merging together. So we have a real mandate out there to try to reduce the amount of these organizations. Um, and that's not easy because they're all backed by different people and, and it gets difficult. But with that being said, um, about two years ago now, we embarked on a project with the International uh, Business uh, Council mm -hmm. of the World Economic Forum to really see if we could distill a lot of these different metrics that are out there into something more simple that companies on their own can get out and disclose. And so we, with the other big four, um, as well as with Bank of America, uh, and Brian Moynihan, who's the CEO of Bank of America, he's the chair of the International Business Council. So we started a project, uh, we all contributed resources and started a project to really distill the different ESG metrics that are out there into what ended up being 21 core metrics. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's supplemental metrics that you can disclose. And we said, look, these 21 core metrics, and we put them in the categories of people, prosperity, planet, and principles of governance. And there's about four or five in each category. And so these metrics, um, why don't we all start disclosing these metrics, uh, you know, as soon as we can. We, we took a very, uh, you know, understanding approach to it meaning that if you can't disclose the metric in the first couple of years, explain why, or maybe it doesn't make sense for you to disclose the metric, um, just explain why. So with that, we were able to actually get uh, over 80 companies, some of the largest companies uh, in the world, to commit to disclosing these metrics. And, the, um, and they all committed to it. They all signed up to it. Uh, and so... We feel like that whole process and what we were involved with has helped galvanize a lot of these organizations as well as regulators. So these metrics now are in front of, you know, the, the, uh, the IFRS Foundation, the SEC, uh, because they all want to, to mandate uh, disclosures now. So we're very proud of that. Uh, all the big four are very proud of it. We continue to encourage not only the biggest companies in the world, but also all companies in the world and all our clients to go down that path. Um, now, if you ask me, you know, where is this going? You know, now I would say the regulators are on this uh, and, you know, and they will mandate some disclosures besides these voluntary disclosures that we're talking about. And my fear, Alberto, uh, is that uh, we're going to end up, you know, 
we're big believers in ESG disclosures across the board, not just environmental, but across the board. But what's happening is that right now, a lot of the focus is around climate. So the regulators are taking up climate first. And so I do think we're going to end up with mandated disclosure on climate. Um, and the other piece that, uh, that I think we're going to end up with, and there's still a hope that we won't, but I think we will, is we will end up with different disclosures in the U.S. Uh, mandated by the SEC versus disclosures uh, mandated by the IFRS Foundation. We've been doing everything possible to try to keep this all united. But unfortunately, because accounting standards are set up that way uh, with IFRS and US GAAP, there's a high risk that this is gonna be set up that way as well. So we are um, we're working for the good here and the global consistency and not just us, but PwC, BNT, and KPMG as well. Um, but I, I do think we will start out with some fractured type disclosure, mandated disclosure. Uh, now we're hoping that these overall 21 and what we, what we have been doing um, will be more consistent and will encourage some of the regulators to be more consistent. Um, but that's where we are at this point. Really, really interesting. And I was going to ask you about on a, on a macro level, policy level, whether things might go one way in the US and another way in, in Europe. And by the way, just to make reference to the points that you mentioned earlier, so these are the, those four pillars, right? So principles of governance, planet, people, and prosperity. And for those who are interested, that would be a WEF or World Economic Forum paper measuring stakeholder capitalism. Take a look at that. And I think that's really, it's a really great uh, paper and, and, and interesting to, um, to read as well. So you mentioned that there's a lot of focus on climate, and obviously that is the, the, the topic on, on, on most people's uh, minds. When I look at EY, one of the things that I, I found really interesting was that for this year, for 2021, you're committing to be uh, carbon negative. That's correct. Which is not a, it's not a, it's not a usual thing. You hear about net zero, but carbon negative uh, for, for this year sounds quite uh, unusual. Yeah. So in 2020, we were carbon neutral, um, and we will aim to be carbon negative here in 2021. Um, so when, when we look at EY, Alberto, um, we, we, most of our carbon emissions are from air travel. Right. Uh, 85 to 90% of our carbon emissions are from air travel. So we, you know, obviously the pandemic uh, has helped in terms of carbon emissions because we're not traveling as much. But what we are doing going forward is um, we are on a path to reduce uh, some of the air travel. Um, and so we are taking what we've learned in the pandemic and putting it to use. So uh, we've modeled this out really through 2025, where we will be carbon negative in 21, 22, 23, 24, and 25 each year but then we will be net zero uh, by 25. And I think we have one of the most aggressive goals uh, of any of our competitors, frankly, or, or many of uh, any company out there, any government out there. But, but some of that, to be fair, is it's a little bit easier in our business and professional services. As I told you, most of it's around air travel. So what we've modeled out, we've actually modeled out that for a period of about a year, uh, once the pandemic's over, now that's not going to be you know on a certain date, but it's going to evolve over about a year period. 
we have modeled that that travel will go back to almost 2019 levels. Right. Um, but then from there, it will reduce. And here's the, you know, to make this very practical, we're saying, okay, EY leaders and partners and so forth. Alberto, if you run a group, a global group, a big group within a country, and you're used to having a, a meeting a quarter, uh, four meetings a year uh, physically, we're asking that you have two physically and two virtually. Okay, so that's pretty simple. But what that does, if everyone does that, it reduces our non-client air travel by 50%. Sure, sure. And, and then we have modeled in there reduction in, in air travel in terms of clients as well. That we, what we modeled in was a modest 10% reduction. I actually think it's going to be higher than that because clients are not going to expect you know, for you to be there physically for a one-hour meeting. In fact, they'll say, why would you do that? You know, let's just do a Zoom call or a Microsoft Teams call. And so I think that's conservative. But when you build all that in, uh, we'll be able to reduce our carbon emissions um, by 30 to 40%, um, okay? And then what we will do is we will participate in offset-type programs yep. um, to basically offset the 60% uh, of carbon that we would be using. Um, and that's, that's, you know, in a nutshell, how we're gonna, going to get to net zero. And frankly, each year, we will buy more offsets versus our carbon usage, which would be how we're going to be negative. Right. And so we're very committed to this. Um, we're committed to it at all levels, at the global board level, all the way down into each region. Uh, we all believe in it. And we really believe in it, Alberto, because we have to, you know, we believe in it because we have to save the planet, but also because we advise our clients on many of this, on sustainability, that's a growing business for us. And one of the first questions we get is, what, what is EY doing? And so we wanted to be aggressive on our goals and what we're achieving. And I think we are, uh, we are much more aggressive on our goals and our competitors. Now, I was reading about how you're aiming to achieve this sort of carbon negative and, and so forth. And uh, two things that there's various bullet points there, but two that were particularly salient for me was these VVPAs, the virtual power uh, purchase agreements yeah. that you have, which yes. I think quite, quite creative, quite interesting. And the other is in terms of requiring your suppliers, 75% of your suppliers to, uh, to set uh, emission targets by financial year 2025. Are you getting pushback on that? No. No, we're not. We're not getting much pushback. I think uh, um, I actually think that will be a goal that we should achieve pretty easily, um, because I do think you know any global suppliers, anyone you know, they're they're on this. You know, I, I, and this is something that I would say, Alberto. About eighteen months ago, I would say in the U.S., a switch went on uh, in terms of climate and sustainability. Um, and I know some people want to equate it to the political situation. It happened. It happened before that. It happened during the Trump presidency. Um, I think people just started realizing that this is a real issue, um, and I think companies came on board and said, "You know, we have to do something differently." And um, and certainly, the young people in the U.S. Um, you know, I, I will tell you a quick story. Sure. Um, I was, we were rolling out our new strategy uh, about two and a half years ago or so uh, when I came into the role as CEO, and our new strategy is called Next Wave, and it's really about uh, 
a long, long-term value strategy uh, around clients, people, and society, uh, which is really, you know, what most companies should be doing in terms of their corporate strategy. But we were rolling that out, and, and the baseline on our strategy is also around using technology and using mm-hmm. advanced technologies as best we can in all our different services. So I, uh, I was going to different town halls, um, some with thousands of people talking about our strategy and what we were doing. And I was in a town hall in New York with about 2,000 people and actually um, going through the strategy. And um, I asked if anyone had any questions and people were shy to ask questions, but we had, we had one of our more you know, junior people in the middle of this huge auditorium raised their hand and I said, yes, good question. And uh, it, it was a he. He said, um, you know, uh, Carmine, I, I love the strategy and so forth, but you don't have enough embedded in the strategy around sustainability. Both, both what we're doing and what are we going to do with our clients? This is two and a half years ago in the U.S. And so I said, you know, you're absolutely right. We're going to go back. And we are going to really figure out our strategy around sustainability and how do we incorporate sustainability into our strategy. And so that was the start. And and in the U now in Europe, that would have been a different story because I think Europe's been way ahead on this. But in the US, to hear that, and literally the auditorium got a stand, he got a standing ovation for asking the question. And so, uh, so that made us go back and really incorporate sustainability. And this is where we really came out with our own goals, but also on how we're going to build a practice around sustainability. And so we are doing a lot of recruiting today uh, around people who are experts uh, in climate engineers and so forth. Uh, it's part of our CCAS group. But not only are we going to have these experts, we're also building sustainability across all our services. And so everything from tax. So we want all our tax people to be really conversant in carbon tax. How's that going to work? Um, what's the potential for carbon taxes in different governments around the world? Um, we, we want our, you know, our deal people and deal advisors to understand sustainability, how it impacts different companies, different sectors, How's that going to get in, you know, get into the valuation of a company? So we're building it across the board. We will have more and more training across the board. Um, and, um, you know, I think it'll be really exciting for our people to learn more, uh, even when you are at EY through our training. Yeah. What about the client selection? And without naming any names, but there have been some sort of management consulting firms out there who maybe had the sort of clients that you may not necessarily want as your clients? And is there anything that you can do to drive forward change by being a little bit more selective or demanding on the sort of clients you do, that you have? Maybe auditing less coal and more renewables? Or Yeah, yeah no, we, we don't... Um, we believe that we're better off working with clients mm-hmm. and helping them uh, become more energy efficient and so forth versus saying we're not going to work with them. And so, I mean, under, under your scenario, you know, we wouldn't be working with a BP or a Shell. Meanwhile, BP and Shell 
are doing a lot around renewables. And, and so we're actually working with them on how they achieve certain things, how they disclose certain things, and, and frankly, how their strategy going forward is going to be different. So our view is not to not work for people. Our view is to work with them and educate them and help them, uh, you know, become more efficient and more energy efficient and, and more, um, more sustainable. Yeah. And how much do they actually know? And by that, I mean, I'm sure you have loads of CEO surveys. You, you have your finger on the pulse of what's out there. Uh, what sort of, you know, what are we looking at? What sort of percentage, percentages of CEOs actually know at, at a granular level what they should be doing next, what they should be doing within the next two years? Where are the areas that you need to educate uh, and inform and possibly change behaviors and attitudes to nudge people along who maybe aren't as clued in on this as you are. Yeah. Look of, of the large companies, most CEOs are, are on this, you know? Um, and so they're, they're figuring out how to be more sustainable and they're getting, they're getting a lot of pressure from their employees, from their investors, from their boards. So they, they have to be on. Um, now, when you get to more medium-sized companies, I think some of them are still learning, um, but but they're they're on this, and uh, it's something that um, you know if you talk about different areas, um, you know obviously we talked about metrics and what you're disclosing and all that. That's an area that certainly we, we do a lot in. But the other area, Alberto, is really helping them um, incorporate sustainability into their corporate strategy. So so you know today. You can't really have a corporate strategy uh, without sustainability being part of it. Uh, now, for some sectors and industries, it's much more ingrained in everything they do from a strategy standpoint. Um, and so, you know, for certainly for energy companies and even consumer products, uh, many CEOs have combined their chief sustainability officer with their chief strategy officer. Okay. Um, or they've had one reporting to the other and so forth. Um, some are still separate, um, but they're just working very well together. And so it has to start with your strategy. And that's what we're telling our clients. So, you know, if you, if you make widgets or, you know, you, you have to make sure that your supply chain is sustainable. And how do you get your supply chain to be sustainable? And, and where is your supply chain? And is it de-risked and so forth? So, so we, in all our practices, we're doing that. And we, we really feel strongly that it starts with your strategy and it has to, sustainability has to be built in. And then eventually you get to disclose what you've accomplished. Yeah. And in terms of ingraining things so deeply into the strategy, I have a feeling, and I've heard many times, that no matter how much technology, how much policymakers you have in favor of ESG, if the consumer, if, the, if human behavior doesn't change, well, we won't get to where we need to go. How do you go about looking at the human behavior? Um, because yeah. I think that's a key component. Yeah. So I think what, what you're really asking is, and, and we've done, you know, we've been involved. We have a consumer, uh, consumer practice um, that advises companies on, on how to deal with consumers and so forth. And so in many stories that we've done, uh, in particular with younger people, um, they really want to buy products um, that are that are green, that are sustainable, that that don't hurt the environment, and so forth. Now the question becomes: Are they willing to pay more for those products? And for the most part, demographically, our younger people, and in a lot of the surveys that we've done, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And so what's happening now in consumer products, Alberto, is that um, you know 
companies are starting to think about how to label their products uh, in terms of, for example, carbon footprint. So the same way food, you know, has calories and nutrients and so forth, products will have, you know, when you buy a bar of soap, it'll say, you know, that that created whatever, 30, you know, whatever, 30 tons or whatever it is to create the bar of soap. And, and so, um, so something more sustainable might be a little bit more expensive, but people will buy it. And that's, these are some of the surveys that we're looking at. These are some of the things that a lot of the consumer products companies, Unilever, Pepsi, are, are looking at uh, as well. When they're looking at packaging and what sort of information they're going to be putting about emissions and so forth, is it uh, scope one, two, and three, meaning the direct emissions you create, the indirect emissions, and also the, the angle from the supplier chain? Or Yeah, so I, they're looking certainly at scope one and two. Scope three gets much more difficult. So I think this has to start probably with scope one and two. Uh, you know, and, and, and there's going to be, I mean, one of the things is that um, the whole accounting on carbon and how you count carbon uh, is complicated. And so in my view, some of that has to be simplified and has to become more standard. Uh, forgetting disclosure, but literally just counting um, uh, carbon. So that's something that I think people are working on and really looking at science-based uh, initiatives, science-based targets, uh, and a common way of measuring. Um, I'm with you. Now we're sort of, well, hopefully in the tail end of the pandemic, you never know, but hopefully that's the case. And in terms of the building back better that we keep on hearing about and, and hopefully the economic recovery, you know, hopefully things will. Um, what are the sort of bits that you're, you're, you're uh, telling your, your clients about that they think, you know, probably focus on this to build back better? Yeah. Uh, number one, uh, we're talking about to our clients a lot about their supply chains. Um, and building back better is really, you know, digitizing their supply chain, making sure the supply chain is more sustainable, and also de-risking their supply chain. So, um, so we have a supply chain uh, practice that advises companies in our consultant practice that advises companies around the supply chain. And this has gotten, this is a really hot area right now because Supply chains have been disrupted, Alberto. So, so it's a chance to build back better um, and also to de-risk um, and also to invest in technology. So when we went into the pandemic, well, we found out that only 25% of our clients' supply chains were digitized. Right. So, so there's a lot of work to be done. And you can imagine in the pandemic, if your supply chain wasn't digitized, you would have a lot of issues just knowing where things were uh, along your supply chain. So, so the first thing is digitizing your supply chain, um, making it sustainable and de-risking it. So, you know, uh, having your entire supply chain in one country, i.e. like a China, uh, I think people have woken up to maybe that's too risky. Um, so we're doing a lot of work in terms of people just diversifying in terms of from a geographical standpoint not just with China, but wherever your supply chain was, having it in one place just doesn't. So you have to have backups and you have to have ways of, of continuing your supply chain if you have some kind of political event or, or, or natural disaster and so forth. Um, so that's just one example um, in terms of building back better and what we're showing our clients. If we're, if, we're having a, if we're having a coffee in 10 years' time or around 2030, um, are you feeling optimistic 
and let's focus there. Are you feeling optimistic that we that the world would be speaking a common language in terms of accounting, in terms of accounting for carbon and in terms of accounting for all these things that are very much in a state of flux right now? Yes, yes. I have confidence that that um, disclosure, accounting on carbon, that'll get resolved over the next five years. Five years. Um, yeah, I think so. I think so. Because, you know, I think it's something that people just have to agree on. It's the actual counting and so forth isn't as controversial as as maybe some of the disclosures and things like that. But but I'm I'm pretty confident, certainly by 2030, I, I think the answer to your question is absolutely yes. Excellent. Excellent. Before we wrap up, I'd like to ask guests for a key takeaway. What would be that one thing that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Yeah, I I would say to the audience on the whole area of sustainability, I would say, you know, really get yourself educated. Um, do a lot of reading, uh, do a lot of research because it is the future uh, and in almost anything that you do. And, and uh, I've been talking to a lot of young people, Alberto, who are, you know, who could be finance majors, accounting majors, engineers uh, in school. And, and I'm, I'm really encouraging them to understand uh, more of the science around sustainability, um, because I think that's going to be important. And frankly, that's going to help you in terms of employment, help you in terms of really going ahead. And, and, um, and it doesn't mean that you have to be an expert, but being conversant and knowing, uh, look, we've, we've taken our chief sustainability officer uh, globally is Steve Varley. He was our head of our UK practice. And when I approached him, almost a year and a half, two years ago to do, to do this role, he thought I was crazy. Uh, and I said, Steve, this will be the future, but you're going to have to learn. And he, uh, and he took it on and he's, um, he studied a lot. He's, he's a real expert, um, you know, where he really understands the, certainly the counting of carbon and so forth. And he's learned that in, in about a year, but here's a senior person um, so I would say be open and educate yourself. And on that note, Carmine, thank you. It's been really great having you on the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you so much, Alberto. It's been fantastic and I love the conversation. Perfect. And that's a wrap. For a full transcript of today's conversation, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org where you will also find information on more than 100 interviews with other remarkable thought leaders. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and I'll catch you next week.